This is the uh, final entry in our eight-part series on hope for healing. And uh, I, I, I'm, I know it's time to move beyond this series, but in some ways I wished I could keep with it. But the material, because there's so much other material from, um, from the book Life's Healing Choices and uh, other similar materials, Larry Roper mentioned Celebrate Recovery. Lord willing, we're going to start that on Monday night, January 1 at 6 p.m. And I want to encourage you to be there. Um, if you don't even know why, it's like, just show up. You, you can't, uh, um, you don't have to come back if you don't really want to, but just show up and see if you need to be there. There's so much more to do with this idea of spiritual recovery and of growing in Christ. But we'll pick that up in sermons when the time is right. Now I feel like I'm giving this to you so that you can take it with you to your groups, to your classes, in your own studies, and continue to work on this. This is truly an ongoing life process. Um, The healing choices that are laid out, the eight principles they call it, uh, they match up with the the 12 steps of recovery programs. One of the things you'll find in the book, Life's Healing Choices, is they love acrostics. An acrostic is when you uh, make your points with uh, words like this. Maybe some of you would like it if I could do that with my sermons. I don't have that gift. Okay, They do. And, um, And I had to move past that for this sermon series because it helped me make sense of all of that. But I tell you, with a few well-placed adverbs, you can make it spell anything. And they, they made it spell recovery, and these are the eight healing choices. And this last one starts with the word yield, and that's the difference between recover and recovery. Grammatically and literally, it's the difference between recover, which is a, um, a state of being, and recovery, which is a process for life. And it's all in that eighth step, this, this eighth healing choice, which we could read it like this. I choose to yield myself to God, to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. And assuming that, that we've, we've gone through all of these other choices, the seven that preceded, then when we get to this seventh choice where we choose to yield, now this continues to grow and build in our life and we're constantly moving through this process. But if the first five really concentrated on our relationship with God and number six really began to focus on our relationship with one another uh, or yeah, and seven, likewise, eight moves us out to where we're, we're using what God has done in our lives for the sake and the benefit of others. Our hurts, our habits, the hang-ups, just whatever it is about us. And I want to say this right here. We tend to think, oh yeah, okay, here's Celebrate Recovery. That's that program for those people with addictions. Those people with addictions. There's a lot of addictions. Some of them come in a bottle. Uh, 
Some of them are found online. But some of them are a bit fuzzier. You can be addicted to drama. You can, and I I don't mean the classics. I mean uh, emotional family drama. You can be addicted to that. And, you know, if things just aren't where they need to be, then maybe you want to turn up the furnace on drama. You uh, You can be addicted to emotions. You can be addicted to your anger. You can be addicted to your own uh, broken identity as one who's been hurt, as the, as the victim, as the sensitive one. Yeah, and, and there's all sorts of ways. We can even get addicted to being religious without actually following God. So I like the fact that we're being called to name our hurts, habits, and hang-ups because that covers, that covers the human race. That covers all of us. And when we name that and we confess that, then we open up space for God to work in us and help us grow and help us change. God changes our hurts, habits, and hang-ups into something that we don't have to constantly apologize for it. We We don't have to constantly carry it around like a badge of shame. But we're able to just name it for what it is, and then God can take it, and he can take that brokenness, and he can turn it into something for his purposes. He can take that pain, and he can turn it into something that points to his goodness. He can, he can take our sin, and he can, and, and this is a churchy word, he can redeem it. You know, there's only one place I ever remember the word redemption being used outside of church. When I was young and I was learning the English language, uh, redemption only showed up on glass bottles. Remember that? And it used to be that with glass bottles, since they were valuable, they could be washed out and used again. It always said on the glass bottle, uh, it can be redeemed for five cents. I thought, this is interesting. A glass bottle, you can redeem it for five cents. With human beings, you have to redeem them with the blood of Christ. Big cost difference there, uh, big price difference. But I still didn't understand what that word redeemed meant. Did it mean you just turn something in and you get money back? What was it all about? And thankfully, today we can understand it a lot better because of a word that we're all familiar with recycling. Yes, recycling. Everybody knows what recycling is. You take your trash and you get to make something useful out of it. Well, that's also what redemption is about. If you're ever going to St. Louis, I'm going to recommend that you go to the City Museum in St. Louis. The City Museum, we went there about five years ago, and we almost missed this one. We just kind of stumbled into it. What they've done at the City Museum in St. Louis is they've taken trash. They've taken garbage. They've taken thrown away things. Everything from uh, thrown away buttons and glass bottles to thrown away jet planes and thrown away school buses. I don't know if you can see it up here, but there's a school bus about to come off the top of that building right there. And they've turned it into a museum, which is part playground and part art exhibit. And, and if you go there, people will be climbing through. See, like this fellow here, climbing through these metal tunnels to get up in there. And they've turned all of this trash into this, into this great amusement park. And sometimes you'll be walking along through the museum and 
you'll see things that are a part of everyday life and you won't recognize it because it's become decorative. Can you guess what these are that are lining the walls right here? It's those metal tubs that they use in cafeterias where they put the food in it and it sits in the hot water and stays hot. And these were all thrown away and so they used it to decorate the walls. And everywhere you go in this museum, they've taken thrown away junk and they've turned it into something amazing, something beautiful. Here are old printing plates that they've decorated a wall with. They've taken trash. They've turned it into something useful or beautiful, interesting. And that's what it means to be redeemed. It means that God takes our faith in Him. He, takes, he, he recycles it. He recycles what we've been through. He recycles our story. Well, it's awfully clever preacher, but isn't that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. It's in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 says, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says, God chose the things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And God chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and He used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. This is the real world example of our human garbage being turned into something for God's purposes. And it's not what we think. It, it, it goes against our ordinary thinking. It certainly went against the thinking in the Corinthian church. Because they believed that they could serve God best and they would be most important and most useful to God if they improved their talents, if they improved their status, if they had riches, if they had prestige, if they had certain spiritual gifts. I mean, that's natural. We think that well, you know, God's going to use those people who are extra talented. They're going to accomplish a lot more. And, and often what we do is we either see ourselves as one of those extra talented people or we compare ourselves to those extra talented people and we say, well, I'm just a kind of a C-minus Christian. I, I don't really live up to that A-plus standard. But that's okay because I'm, I'm just sort of average or we down ourselves with it and say i don't know what use i am to god because i can't preach like him i can't sing like her i can't i, I can't influence people like they do I, I i really don't know where i fit in and i'm going to tell you right now all of that kind of thinking stinks okay all of that kind of thinking is no good and paul right here says think about who you were corinthians when god called you you aren't the greatest. You aren't the most talented. You aren't the most prestigious. But God took all those things that the world considers broken and flawed, and He used them. And He did it to shame our worldly thinking that says, you've got to be the smartest. You've got to be the most powerful. You've got to be influential. You've got to have all the wealth. You've got to have all the talent. God actually loves to take the imperfect things and He uses it to display His power. Why, why does He do that? Well, there's two reasons. One is, 
In reality, God has no other type of person to work with. God has tried working with the perfect people in the world, and guess what? He couldn't find any. They're just not there. So, from God's perspective, there's no one else to work with. And even those that the world considers great and successful, uh, they may look very different to God. The second reason why God works in this whole recycling process is because when God has accomplished good despite our limits, despite our brokenness, in spite of our sin, then He's the one that gets the glory. It points to His power, not us. Everyone knows that God is doing it. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said he struggled with something, whatever he calls the thorn in the flesh. Now, if you ask me what Paul's thorn in the flesh is, I've got an answer. I know what it is, okay? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, And and I I think he left it that way so that all of us would have a thorn in our flesh and get distracted by this and wonder what it is. Um, It doesn't matter. Because the point is that whatever it is that Paul's struggling with, God's not going to just remove it or fix it. God's going to give him grace to overcome it. And so, where Paul displays a certain kind of weakness, he says, that looks like weakness where I'm concerned, but what you see is God's power. He says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weakness, because in my weakness, the power of Christ works through me. Now, that's not just Paul. Paul's read his Bible. He's experienced the gospel. He knows what it looks like. If you look... God's track record is constantly working with the flawed people. Somewhere around Genesis 12, when he decides that he's going to, uh, he's got a strategy, he's got a plan for salvation, and his strategy is, here's what we'll do, we'll create a nation. We'll raise up a group of people. They'll be the descendants of a spiritual father. And, and, And they will show the rest of the world what it means to be my people. They will be a living example. Now, now to do this, we've got to start with a man and his wife. And so he picks a guy who's well into his 70s and his wife who can't have children. By worldly standards, not the best move. I think it'd be a lot better to get a, you know, some, some 18, 19-year-old and give him about 10 wives, you know. Then, you know, it'd just be like raising rabbits, you know. So, uh, but, but again, what are we trusting in? We're trusting in the human process. When Abraham and Sarah have the child that they name laughter because it just doesn't make sense, that's a living example of the power of God. And then that story gets repeated over and over again. The ones who are the most unlikely candidates to be king, to be warriors, uh, to be spiritual leaders. Those are the ones that God uses, and it becomes clear to everyone that this is God at work. So you and I fit into not only a great tradition, but the way of God to use us. Those things that you think disqualify you, turn those over to God, and God can recycle that. And he can make your life work for his purposes and for the good news. To do that, though, what you've got to do is you've got to yield. Don't yield to temptation, but yield to redemption. Okay? We're, we, 
it's, it's our normal thinking to think that we are tempted in our weaknesses. I have a weakness for this, I have a weakness for that, and so I've got a, you know, just fill in the blank, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I, I, have a, I have a weakness to stuffed crust pizza, I eat too much to it, oh, it's a weakness, okay. That's the way we tend to think of our weaknesses. But you know, in fact, we are most tempted in our human strengths. Because that's where we learn to rely on our ability or we rely on the affirmation of others and not on God. In the Gospels, when Jesus is taken out to the wilderness and he's tempted, he's tempted in all ways, just like humanity, with the three things that tempt everybody. And when I was young, I thought I knew the answer to that. I thought the answer was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No. Jesus is tempted in ways that you and I cannot always relate to. He can relate to us. Let me put it like this. When's the last time you were tempted to turn a rock into a piece of bread? Some of us have turned pieces of bread into rocks when we're trying to cook bread. But the other way around, you don't get tempted to do that because we can't do that. But for Jesus, he's tempted to use his strengths, the power of God. That is his. He's tempted to use it for his own purposes. To feed his hunger. To take care of the hunger in the world. To receive glory when the angels pick him up. Jesus is tempted to bow down and worship Satan and to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But is he not the king of kings and Lord of lords? Yes. But Satan would have him do it on his own terms rather than God's. And Jesus overcomes the temptation to do things his own way. And as we said around the communion, as Larry led us around the communion this morning, he commits himself to obedience to God and trusting in God rather than just getting out of it by his own power. I always remember that. We're most tempted in our strengths. That's the area where we'll learn to rely on ourselves and not God. It's in our weaknesses, what we call our, our weaknesses tempt us when we don't turn them over to God. Our weaknesses become a source of temptation when we don't discipline that and hand that off to God. But once we do, that becomes the place where God reshapes us and reforms us and God redeems us and recycles us because we learn to trust God. We learn to put certain boundaries on ourselves, but more than that, we see the power of God at work in us, taking those things that, that the garbage we used to wallow in and removing it, and changing it, and recycling it, so that it can become something useful for God's purposes. When's the last time you related to somebody who said that they were better than you? When's the last time when someone came to you and said, listen, I know all the answers, I know everything, you might be thinking it's right now, I, I guarantee you it's not, I, 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 I only preach from my experience of how I have gotten it wrong. Everything else I want to be the Word of God. Because I don't think, I know I don't, and I don't think you relate to somebody who's got it all figured out. Because you and I often feel like we're the people who mess up. But when you hear somebody say that, it connects with you. And you, you might be thinking, you know, you know, I've been through that too. 
I don't have time, and it's not the focus of the preaching here for me to tell you all my mess-ups. Some of them are perfectly obvious, and, uh, but, but some of them, I'll talk to some of you about it, but that's not what's important. We need to be talking to one another. This is why we confess to one another appropriately in the appropriate way, because then we learn that we're not alone. One of the things I love about this congregation is that in this congregation, we are truly, we're like that city museum. We are recycled. There are stories of faith where God has taken us from failure to faith. And I've met people who've come here and they've said, I don't, I don't think people will accept me if they know what I've been through. And I said, I don't know what you've been through, but I guarantee you, whatever you've been through, someone else has been through it too. And they've got a story about God to share with you and how God helped them through that. And I see that at work in this congregation. I see that spirit here. And this is why I, I think one of the things we'll grow into, hopefully, uh, as we move along, is the idea of witness. Now, this, again, is one of those little churchy things. You know? I remember hearing in some preaching you know, later on in my life that can I have a witness was just sort of a way to get people ginned up. You know, can I have a witness? Amen. You know, and I was like, what are they witnessing to? Um, what's this all about? The word witness, simply use it for what it is. It's someone who's seen something. It's someone who's experienced something. A witness, and again, we get kind of churchy about it, and we think that a witness has to be something that um, inspires, or a witness has to be something that, that uh, really, really just you know, impacts people. And uh, We used to talk about this in preaching school, about you know, it's like you know, the best sermons are the one that makes everybody cry. I mean, when everybody cries, then you know you've arrived. Well, that's the wrong measuring stick. Uh, if it makes you cry, it makes you cry. If it doesn't make you cry, it doesn't make you cry. The real measuring stick of a message or a sermon or a witness or a testimony is this. Does it give glory to God? Does it give glory to God? Can someone through that story see how they can experience a deeper relationship with God. And, and that's what witnesses are. A witness or a testimony is when we give glory to God by telling or showing what He did to redeem us, maybe even despite our own selves and our constant habit of getting in the way when God's trying to make things better. In Acts, when the apostles give witness, witness is not a formula of evangelism that, that, that they know a certain little... Um, uh, pattern of of what you're supposed to do but they are witnessing to what god did in jesus christ they are the witnesses because they've seen it they've experienced it and just like a witness in a court of law they're just asked what do you see what what have you what have you witnessed and they tell that story we don't use this terminology i think as often as we should but it is important because when we, when we yield to redemption, we're going to have a witness. We're going to have a story. And don't rush into it. Let God reveal that to you. It's where your life and the good news of the gospel connect. And you witness it in your own life. And that's your story. That's your testimony or your witness. But if you're going to yield to redemption... And you want the hows, it's real, real simple, two hows. First of all, you have to experience it. You can't witness what you haven't seen. It just doesn't make sense. 
So you need to experience it. And maybe you have experienced it and you're just not aware of it, and that's why you need to spend some time really experiencing it. But I'm not just, you know, and again, we, we might down ourselves thinking, well, my conversion story is not very dramatic. No one said it had to be dramatic. It just has to be true. It just has to be God. And your story is what God wants it to be, and he's going to use that for his purposes to communicate and connect with someone else. So experience it. Know what you've experienced. Be able to articulate it. And then also, you must be saved. Oh, now, that's a very preachy phrase. In fact, I'd even make it more preachy if I said, ye must be saved. Oh, boy. I want you to stop, though, and really listen to what I'm saying there. Be saved. This isn't do it yourself. Sometimes we look at the salvation process as a do-it-yourself salvation. Let me tell you what you've got to do to be saved, and really what we're saying. You can save yourself. Um, It always reminds me of those old game shows that they would always try to sell you the home version. You know? Hey, do you like our game show? You can play the home version. How lousy is that? I mean, those were always those were always just you know they were no good because you didn't have the same announcer, you didn't have the celebrities, you didn't have the game, you didn't have the commercials and all the lights and buzzers and everything. Salvation is not a do-it-yourself project. Salvation is a submission to God. We're turning ourselves over to Him. When you look at these two verses, Luke eighteen. The apostles, the ones closest to Jesus, they are mystified. They see this man who's got everything going for him in the world. We know him as the rich young ruler. He's got power, he's got money, he's got wealth, he's got youth, he's got strength. He comes to Jesus, and he's trying to make salvation a do-it-yourself enterprise. He's come to Jesus asking, what more do I need to do? And when Jesus says, you've got a problem with material stuff, you need to go sell everything you have. He can't do it. Because he's not willing to rely on God. He's relying on his own power. Now the apostles are backed up and they're scared at this point and they say, wow, if this is the way it is, if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus' answer is, well, with you ordinary human beings or even you great human beings that's impossible but with god it's possible and then you read in acts 2 21 where peter's preaching and he's he's telling they think that they they think that they have cut off their salvation because they're convicted they've crucified their savior their rescuer their king what are they going to do now they killed him but the message of peter is Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's not a formula for salvation. That's a declaration that the way we are saved is to turn to God and yield to His redemptive power. That we call out. Have you ever called out for help? I mean really called out for help? That means you can't do it yourself. That means that you are struggling. That's what he's talking about here. And, and I think one of the ways that we yield to this redemption is we, we stop and ask ourselves a very important question. Are we the rescued or are we the rescuers? For too long, the church and Christians have put themselves in the rescuer category. 
And I think we're involved in the rescue operation. But that rescue operation is definitely guided by, led by, and empowered by God and God alone. Even in this little picture with this fellow hanging off the cliff and reaching out, you can see, to somebody's hand there to save them. Do you notice who's really involved in the rescue process? That rock. Because if that huge rock cliff weren't hanging up there, the guy on the rope would be out of luck. Yeah. You know, we all need oxygen. And I want you to remember that. Because some of us, we'd like to find our salvation and our identity in being the rescuers. It's easier to be the rescuer because if you're the rescuer, then, then, then you get to be a good person. You get to save others. You get to, to help others. And, and you don't need anybody. And, and you're not doing that for bad reasons. You might be doing that because, oh, well, you don't want to bother anybody. You don't want to put anybody out. If you've ever flown on a plane... And, you know, the flight attendants will come up and they'll do the safety dance. You know, that's that thing where they talk, they show you, you know, and lock the seatbelt over here, tuck your head and say your prayers. And, you know, and, all, and they go through all of that. And one of the things they tell you in the, in the safety dance is that if the cabin depressurizes, oxygen masks drop down. And before you assist others, put your own mask on. Now, for some of us, we hear that and we think, well, that seems awful selfish. I think it'd be better to help other people first. Uh Well, here's the problem. If there's no air and you suffocate, you're not a rescuer or a helper anymore. You've basically become a boat anchor at that point. And you can't help anybody because you've passed out. You've got to attach yourself to the power, to the oxygen, to the source of life. And then you can assist others. But understand, what's keeping everybody alive is the oxygen. It's the same way when we're involved in the rescue operation. It's the power of God that's doing this. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul has one of his his best well-known images. It's the image of a great treasure stuck in an old broken clay jar. It's like this treasure. Yeah. Why? That's not a pretty container. That's an old Utz uh, cheese ball container there, you know. Somebody's painted it up. And that's what he's comparing it to. He's saying you've got this great treasure, and it's just in, a, in an old paper bag, or it's in a cardboard box. Hmm. But that's what we are. We're just broken containers. But we're carrying around a treasure that was put in us by God, by Jesus Christ. And so that's what shines forth. That's what we're sharing with others. The other way that this recycling works and the way we see our rescue is that what others intended for harm, God turns it around and uses it for good. That's the story of Joseph. When after everything his family's done to him, there he is in Egypt and and he finally just breaks down. They know it's him. He's the second in command in Egypt. They know that he can take his revenge on them, and he says, no, what you intended for harm, God turned around to good so that people could be saved. Joseph is not their savior. Joseph may have been a wise kid. He may have been smart. He may have saw a way to get them through the famine. He may have had this gift for prophecy, 
But it was not his plan to put himself in Egypt, to be sold into slavery, to be thrown in prison. And that even wasn't God's plan. That was the evil of his brothers, and God takes that garbage, that family garbage, and turns it into a redemptive process of salvation. Joseph becomes part of the rescue project. But God is the rescuer because he can change the bad to good. That person that's hurt you, that hurt that you carry around and have carried around for a long time, God's bigger than that. God's more powerful than that. He can turn it into something for his purposes. But you need to yield to his power. So our mission, if we want to get involved in the rescue mission, yeah, you get it. That's a Mission Impossible reference. Always started out every show that way. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, and we better move along because this message is going to self-destruct here. But uh, your, your mission is number one. And you know, think about our mission back there. Making disciples for Jesus who are eager to serve others. And there's one way we can read that mission statement that's on that banner. And we can see it as if we are the rescuers and the ability and the power is all up to us. But I want you to read it with new eyes where we realize that we are the rescued. And yeah, we're involved in God's great mission And the first disciple we have to make is us. We have to be a disciple. You can't make a disciple unless you're first a disciple. Unless unless you witness it. Unless you have been saved from God and know how and why and from what. And the second thing then is, is once you dig into that and give... Give space for God. You know, one of the healing choices is to to reserve time with God. Make an appointment with God. Let Him show it to you. It's part of the the saving, sanctifying process. Is you're going to know your story. You're going to know where God's story steps in and writes your story so that you can have a witness, a testimony, an example, so that by words and deeds you're able to tell people, what the gospel has done for you. You're not writing your own gospel. The gospel is the gospel. But I think anybody who's experienced the power of the gospel ought to be able to say what difference it's made in their life. I mean, you just think about it. If we're talking to people and we say, we believe this gospel, we believe that this gospel is power, we believe that this is hope, we believe that this is the the, the power of resurrection, what are you going to do when somebody says, oh yeah? And what did it do for you? I think they deserve an answer. And I think we can give that answer. And I think that's what Peter was saying in his letter when he said, be ready to tell people why you have hope. Oh, and in a hopeless world, that's going to be like fresh air. Be a disciple, know your story, and let God give you an audience. You don't have to go run out on the streets with a megaphone, shouting at everybody. Repent for the end is near. No. God's going to bring the audience to you. If he's using us, if he's directing us, if we have become his clay jars with that treasure of the gospel, he's going to bring people to us that need to hear what we have. He's in charge of this. He's involved in this rescue mission. He didn't check out and go off on vacation and left us here to clean things up. Oh, no. 
We're his church. And he's, he is adding to it daily. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'll help us to know our stories and our story and help us to experience your good news every day so that we have reasons that we can name it, we can tell others, we can share good news simply to bring you glory. And I pray that there will be those who hear and I pray that there will be those of us who are able to speak and to live it. Father, help us to know our story and be your disciples. We yield ourselves to your redemptive power. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And folks, that's just what this moment is right now. It's a time where you can yield. If you want to go and visit with some of our shepherds, right back there in that room, you'll go right out these doors. There's a, there's a room there with pews. If you want to talk to some of them who will be standing here, or if you just want to gather with them, or maybe even the people around you later on today, you can do that. But I ask that God lead you in that, and you, you listen, okay? We can do that. So let's all stand now, and we're going to sing and encourage one another, and may God give us the power to do and to act.